we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the Center. And we're going to have an interesting interview today that actually relates to what's going on in the news. But make sure to stay tuned in for my closing commentary after the interview. Our guest today is Jessica Vaughn. She's director of policy studies here at the Center for Immigration Studies. And she's going to be talking about chain migration. This is something she's written about some and is a perennial subject in the immigration debate. But it has some specific relevance for what's going on now because there's both the consideration of a big amnesty in Congress, which I'd have to say the odds are against it passing, but it's a live thing that the Biden administration and the Democratic leadership in both houses of Congress are pushing. And also the chain migration issue relates to the issue of Afghan refugees refugees broadly described, all of the people that we're going to be resettling here from Afghanistan. In both of those cases, the people we give legal status to will be able to petition other people down the road, relatives. And that's what chain migration is. It's important issue that needs to be considered while considering these things or before adopting any of these policies, because it's one of the inevitable consequences of these kind of immigration policies. So, Jessica, thanks for coming on the show. And first describe, maybe a little better than me, what is chain migration and why is this an important issue? Sure. Chain migration is built into our legal immigration system, first of all. But it, it can also be amplified by certain kinds of immigration decisions that are also made and not necessarily built into the law every year. So we have four basic categories of immigration in the law, family-based, employment, humanitarian, and the lottery. And there is a fifth kind that is significant in our discussion, and that's amnesty as well. So all of those categories of immigration, people who apply are allowed to bring their existing immediate family members. But also, our immigration law provides in the family category, categories mostly for people who become citizens, to bring over extended family members or a spouse that they acquire after they got legal immigration status in the United States. Just to be clear, Jessica, immediate family means their spouse and unmarried children under what age? 21 or 18? It's under the age of 21. Right. And so those people get green cards when you get a green card at the same time. Right. Right. So most of our legal immigration, which is about a million a year, 
is family immigration. And about 60% of it is chain migration. And this happens because of the family categories, which are limited in number, but it also happens because there are two categories of family migration that are not numerically limited, and there's no waiting list for people to wait for their number to come up. And so those numbers are pretty large in our system. We're talking about 500 to 600,000 people a year out of a million. And the categories are basically beyond the immediate family. They are for your sons and daughters who are over 21. And if they're married, they can bring their families as well. And there's also a category for siblings of U.S. citizens and their families. And as I said, some of these are limited by law numerically, so they're not huge numbers a year. It's a little over 200,000 per year. Well, it's a lot. It just doesn't grow necessarily because of the cap. Right. The big categories are the unlimited ones of spouses of U.S. citizens and parents of U.S. citizens. And the parents category, interestingly, is the one that grows the most and is one of the big sources of chain migration. So that's what's baked into the law. There are some researchers from Princeton University who calculated what the chain migration multiplier is. Explain what you mean by the multiplier. They sought to quantify how many chain migration immigrants the average new immigrant to the United States brought in. So they took all of the numbers of new immigrants, people like in the refugee categories, employment, and the lottery, and some family categories, and actually attempted to calculate how much chain migration resulted from those new immigrants. And what they found was that the average new immigrant to the United States sponsors an average of 3.45 additional family members. So each green card we give out creates three and a half more green cards down the road, basically. Exactly, exactly. And there are different rates that they calculated for different nationalities. I've never seen a study of which categories of immigration produce the most chain migration. I think that would be pretty interesting. But at any rate, the multiplier that we're working off of now is 3.45. So when you're talking about admitting, say, 100,000 new refugees, that is going to result likely in probably 350,000 new additional immigrants through chain migration over time. And just to be clear, some of those numbers, in other words, it's not necessarily, say, 350,000 people extra on top of the level because some of those people would come in numerical categories, but the ones who come in the unlimited categories would be extra, that literally those numbers would not have happened right? were it not for the original green card grant. And that's why we see when you look at a line graph of legal immigration to the United States over history, and I actually created this line graph for my report on chain migration, what you see is that under existing law, legal immigration remained pretty steady for a number of years. If you can believe this, in 1970, 
when you and I were in elementary school, legal immigration numbered 373,000 a year. Yep. By the early 80s, it was up to 500 to 600,000 per year. It only hit the levels that we have now after the 1986 amnesty. And it's pretty clear through the numbers. You can see that the big jump to get us over a million a year and even higher in some years right after the amnesty was that amnesty, which injected a huge number of new initial immigrants who would then sponsor family members to the United States. And that's what really kind of supercharged immigration to the United States after 1990. There also was a change to the law in 90, which allowed more employment immigrants. Right, yeah. But the real effect is from the amnesty. Right. And so in a sense, really what chain migration represents is yesterday's immigrants are the ones who are picking tomorrow's immigrants. It's almost like a perpetual motion machine. In other words, it's almost like putting immigration on autopilot. When you take in somebody, that person is the one who decides who's going to come in in the future, rather than some kind of yardstick that we use to determine what's best for the United States. That's exactly right. And, and it helps explain why there continue to be huge fiscal costs associated with our legal immigration admissions, because the family members that are sponsored by immigrants tend to be the same socioeconomic characteristics as the original immigrants. So when we have an immigration system that's driven largely by family and humanitarian and lottery and amnesties, the chain migration result is going to be pretty much the same kind of people. And employment-based immigration right now is only about 14 or 15 percent of total legal immigration. So even increasing that a little bit is not going to help much. If we're concerned about the effects of chain migration on the type of immigration flow that we're having and the cost of immigration, then, then we need to talk about some fundamental reforms to our legal immigration system. But it's also important, I, I think, in the short run to remember that any type of new immigration is going to be larger than what is advertised, whether it's the number of DACA members getting amnesty or the number of refugees or any category at all that's an add-on to our legal immigration system that it's always more than they say it's going to be. And, you know, in a sense, it's actually worse than, say, replicating, you know, that tomorrow's immigration will simply replicate yesterday's because of this chain migration. It actually, in a human capital sense, not in a moral sense, obviously, but in a human capital sense, chain migration, even if you start from, say, skilled immigrants to begin with, once family members start coming in, the educational level and the skill level actually goes down. In other words, you start with, let's say, some skilled person from abroad, but his spouse comes with him. Well, once she becomes a citizen, she can sponsor her parents and siblings. And at some point you get to the deadbeat brother-in-law. And so the point here is that actually the education level, the human capital, if you look at an individual chain of immigration, not the whole phenomenon, but a particular person and then the ones who came after him, it would likely, on average, it's likely that the 
skill level and education level actually declines over time, I would suspect. Well, one thing for sure that's happening is the average age of immigrants is rising. And I think right. a lot of that is due to the fact that the parents is an unlimited category. And also that the siblings category has a very long waiting list. And so when they arrive here, they tend to be older. And that has implications for the fiscal costs, again, of the population that we're admitting and whether right. we're admitting people who are going to be self-sufficient. And the answer from immigration expansionists to this issue of waiting lists, because there's something like 4 million people on a waiting list for some kind of immigration category and are waiting for their turn to come up. The answer the expansionists give is, that's right, and therefore we should you know, have unlimited immigration so there's no waiting lists. Essentially, waiting lists are sort of the worst of both worlds. I mean, it limits immigration, but it does it in this awkward and, frankly, politically problematic way that creates pressure for ever more immigration, rather than saying that you submit an immigration application for this year, and if you don't get selected, the application turns into a pumpkin and you have to decide whether you're going to apply again next year or not. Right. That would be a good reform. Essentially, people complain, they say that the waiting list itself is a problem. And so the answer is to let them all in, as you right. said, when really the problem is that our law promises the green card to more people than can be reasonably accommodated under the number of people that we've decided we want to admit in a year. What we need to look at is, should we be promising immigration to as many people as we are right now? And is it fair to those people that were saying, you're going to qualify for a green card to say, sure, you're going to get a green card, but you're going to have to wait 25 years for it. Right. I mean, this is one of the insights that I took. I mentioned this in an earlier episode. Insights I took from the Jordan Commission report, which was managing immigration via waiting list is just a bad way of doing it. That instead, you right. should look at which people you want to let in. And I would define that narrowly and then let them all in every year. Right. And obviously, it depends on how you define who's going to be eligible. But whoever is eligible, if you're eligible, you should get in. And if you're not, then you shouldn't be on a waiting list. You should have to just apply again. Right. And that was a feature of an important piece of legislation a few years ago called the RAISE Act that was originally introduced by Senators Tom Cotton and David Perdue that sought to fundamentally reform our legal immigration system and modernize it, along with a couple other important reforms that they had in there. They, they did want to do away with the waiting lists and also admit more people on the basis of skills or other characteristics, primarily education, that they offer and evaluate their applications on that rather than the fact that they were related to somebody who's already here. Now, obviously, I think everybody agrees that American citizens and, and even green card holders should be able to sponsor spouses that they acquire since they got their status. I disagree on the green card holders. If you're married when you get your green card, obviously your spouse gets a green card too. But if you get a green card when you're unmarried, I don't know, this is just me, but I don't think we should give you special immigration authority, which is what this amounts to, delegating immigration authority to individuals until you become a citizen. When you're a citizen, 
then you have every right to expect your fellow citizens to delegate to you the authority to decide who's going to move to the United States by marrying someone or adopting a baby or what have you. I guess I'm a softie on yeah, that you're a, one. You're a but I'm not a softie on the parents, though. <laughs> right. See, I feel very strongly that we need to take a look at that parents category. And I personally think that the category for parents of U.S. citizens should be a numerically limited category because it is one of the fastest growing. It's a couple hundred thousand a year. And I don't see that as an essential ingredient for a legal immigration system. The other approach to that, in other words, there's two ways of dealing with this parents immigration issue. Well, there's three, I guess. One is just get rid of the category and that's the end of the story. And then there's your approach of numerically limiting the immigration of parents of adult U.S. citizens. But the approach that the Rays Act and other people have taken over the years is to get rid of the green card category altogether for parents, but replace it with a renewable non-immigrant visa so that you'd never be eligible for citizenship and all of the benefits that flow from that. What are your thoughts about are there drawbacks to that issue of a indefinite visitor visa for parents as opposed to the kind of numerical limitation you're talking about? Well, first of all, in principle, I don't like the idea of a permanent temporary visa because right. there, the reality is, is that once we admit someone's parents on, even if it's called a temporary visa, they're here to stay. Right. There's not going to be any enforcement of any rules about who is supporting them. They're going to be supported by the social safety net that exists wherever they end up settling, regardless of what sponsorship paperwork or what the law says about the fact that they're supposed to be self-sufficient or that the family is going to support them. That's just never going to be enforced. We yeah. know that from experience. So I just don't see that as a good solution. I see that more as a gimmick, right? except for the part about them not becoming citizens and able to sponsor even more chain migrants. I would just prefer to limit the number of parents. You know, if we're not going to eliminate the category, which would be fine with me if we did, right. to just put an, a cap on it so it slows down the process a bit and does not become an entitlement. Like right now, there are many, many people who get green cards whose full expectation is to bring over their parents at a certain point. Other developed countries do it a little bit differently. Like I think it's the UK that says, well, you can bring your parents, but only if you can show that they have no other support in their home country or anywhere else. There are other models that exist around the world that we could look at. Well, even that might be because you might use different criteria. In other words, let's say there's a numerically right. capped parents category. But even that, you could, instead of just doing first come, first serve, it could be limited to people who, say, have no adult children anywhere but the United States, for instance, something like that, or that most of their adult children are in the United States. You would have to clear that hurdle just to be eligible for the green card. But I think you and I would probably both agree that if we reduced legal immigration overall, the issue of chain migration becomes much less important because right. the multiplier acts on a smaller base number to begin with. And you know, that there are some categories that are completely extraneous, like, in my opinion, like the siblings of U.S. citizens and the adult married 
sons and daughters of U.S. citizens who have their own families and lives in their home country and, yeah. and should not have the entitlement or expectation of being able to move here with, you know, with their parents. And much less the lottery as the initial right. starter for a migration chain. Because obviously if somebody wins a lottery and gets a green card, then they have a green card and they're going to be able to sponsor their own relative. And, you know, one right. point I wanted to bring up about specifically about the Afghan refugee issue, because so much of the discussion is focused on the relative handful of people who were translators and interpreters for the military and for the State Department, because that's what's always held up, the military in particular. Military translators are kind of held up as the norm for Afghan refugees, when in fact there's only, I mean, literally since 2007, when it was created, we've only taken 2,100 people under that category, and that includes their family members. But my point here is that even the Afghan translators who move here, they're being allowed in because of a particular characteristic of theirs, that they risk their lives helping our servicemen. But once chain migration kicks in, you get the siblings and the spouse's siblings, and et cetera, and on and on, mm -hmm. none of whom were willing to take a bullet for the United States necessarily. In other words, in all of these categories, whatever the rationale for the original one, let's say an employment-based, or again here, like military translators, that rationale no longer exists for all of the people who follow in that chain kind of undermining the point of using some kind of yardstick or rationale for picking the original person in the first place. And my understanding was in the early years of that special immigrant visa program for Iraqis, and, and I heard this about Afghans in particular, that after the principal beneficiary got here to the United States on the special immigrant visa, the SIV, when they found out that they weren't going to be able to sponsor all of their extended family members for green cards, right. some significant number of them actually went back to Afghanistan. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Probably not going to happen now, but still, I mean, it... But that whole idea of like that some members of Congress feel that we should be offering chain migration as an entitlement right. prompted them to expand the criteria to family members at a certain point. Right. Adult sons and daughters are covered by these, too. Yeah. And this is, just to be clear, the special immigrant visa is for a green card. In other words, it's not just uh, letting somebody in as a visitor. They get green cards and eventual citizenship. Right. It's not temporary safe haven. Right, right, like, exactly. you know, for refugees or anything like that. It's a green card. So anything else on the chain migration issue? Just that I think it's important for Congress to keep it in mind in any discussions about reforming our legal immigration system. And, and that's that, you know, we need to be looking at cutting categories and shifting to a more merit-based system of choosing immigrants, avoiding amnesties, but also avoiding some of these gimmicky rules that are proposed sometimes to increase immigration. For example, we often hear about changing the rules so as not to count family members against the numerical limits. Right. It's usually about one for one in terms of dependence versus the sponsored immigrant, the original sponsored immigrant. In the case of refugees and lottery winners, it's usually much more than that, especially with the SIVs. Right. We saw that 8,000 
people who qualified in one category from Afghanistan turned into 20,000 actual visas that were issued, including their family. Right. And this will be true of Central Americans or, and you know, really any category of immigration that we have. So it's time to streamline and rethink our legal immigration system to start from scratch and figure out who should be our priorities and work from there. And there's even a process reform that may be more palatable or less unpalatable to some people. And that would be something like a statutory requirement that any immigration action be accompanied by a chain migration impact statement. In other words, any immigration proposal to be accompanied by how many further people are likely to be coming in using whatever multiplier, this multiplier you talked about of almost three and a half subsequent green cards for each green card we give out, or some other multiplier that maybe the government comes up with its own official number, which, I mean, they have the data to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things that I have never understood is the government has the ability to do analyses like this. And we simply don't want to know, apparently. Yeah, yeah, they don't want uh, to other know. Other countries do it. You could learn so much from studying which categories of immigrants sponsor others and even look at how they're doing economically. But, you know, we and, should and the start with just the numbers. Is, yeah, I mean, some people might say, well, you know, why don't you guys do it? You're CIS. Well, data from the Census Bureau, which is a different kind of data, is publicly available for the most part. I mean, it's, uh, it's massaged a little bit. But this kind of data is not generally publicly available. You have to FOIA it. The some of it you just can't get no matter what. And so, in a sense, it really is Homeland Security is the only people. I mean, obviously, there are researchers have at various points gotten access to some of this data, but it's the government that has it, all of it, and they can use it for this kind of even life cycle studies, as they call it, sort of what you suggested. Mm-hmm. In other words, how are they doing economically down the road? There was was it a couple of years ago they did a life cycle study? That was more um, people in deportation proceedings. Yeah, but... okay. Exactly. In other words, what was sort of the chain of statuses and what have you that they went through? But there's no reason that DHS couldn't do life cycle analysis of legal immigrants as well. They're not going to be given out anybody's name or address, so they're looking at aggregate data. But like you said, they don't want to know because if the government does a study, it then has to be public. It can't just hide it. I mean, they can try, but. And people might actually demand some changes, right, <laughs> like exactly. like the first time that they ever studied the number of overstays. And when the number came out that it was 40% of illegal immigrants, people went, what? We better yeah, exactly. do something about that. Exactly. Uh, now, we haven't done much about it yet, but the point <laughs> right. is it, it, it highlights bit. an issue that can't be ignored. But I still think the idea of like some kind of chain migration impact statement for you know any amnesty proposal, for instance, or any proposal to make changes to legal immigration at all, would be a useful way of at least highlighting what the long-term downstream consequences of these proposals are. Yes, and it's entirely doable and, and, right, and should exactly. be a requirement. So you had done a report, this is now a couple of years ago, on this chain migration issue, looking at the multiplier, what is the research on it, what are the issues. We'll have that report in the show notes, a link to the report. Anything else before we go, Jessica? Not that I can think of. Actually, one point I did want to bring up is that when President Trump brought up the idea 
of chain migration and critiquing it, suddenly the phrase chain migration became toxic or politicized or something. And hasn't that just been the phrase that's been used by everybody, including researchers all along? Absolutely. It was a commonly used term by immigration policy wonks, I guess I would say, and certainly among scholars of our immigration system. It was just the term to describe family members brought by what they call the initial immigrants. Right. It was not loaded in any way, but either because Trump said it or somebody associated with Trump said it or, you know, or because it's associated with proposals to change our immigration system in a way that would result in reductions or more skills-based or merit-based immigration, it's suddenly become a dirty word, which is absurd. The thinking there is that if you can't label something, if there's no word for something, then you really can't talk about that thing. Because if nobody's allowed to say chain migration, well, then how do you talk about the phenomenon of chain migration? I mean, right. that, and that's, I think, the, the goal is to protect chain migration in the law by prohibiting people from using the word itself. Right. And it was never intended to be a pejorative. I mean, right. immigrants themselves acknowledge this. Yes, you know, my, my grandfather was responsible for 20 other immigrants or, you know, right, everybody right. knows It's just a descriptive term, in other words, rather than a normative one. Right. Because in a sense, there's always going to be some chain migration. In my ideal immigration world, where the only relatives who get in are spouses and children, and we take in a handful of Einsteins, some of those handful of Einsteins aren't going to be married and may marry somebody from abroad, and that's chain migration. So there's always going to be some of it. The question is, how much of it, how do we manage it? Do we allow these chains to continue indefinitely? That sort of thing. In other words, chain migration is not itself a normative statement. In other words, it's not that it's bad in itself, just the existence of it isn't wrong. It's a phenomenon that we have to manage and limit and regulate in a way that's consistent with the national interest. Right. And if you actually studied it, you would find out things like, as the Princeton researchers did, apparently half of all the spouses sponsored by U.S. citizens are sponsored by naturalized U.S. citizens and half by U.S. born. I mean, it's just sort of an interesting question. Right. Exactly. It just helps us learn about our immigration system and the incentives and the way it operates. But I think a lot of people don't, don't want that information out because they like the way it works for now. Anyway, thank you, Jessica, for coming on the show. Like I said, her report on chain migration, which is from a couple of years ago at this point, but it's still current, will be in the show notes. It's on our website, which is cis.org, along with all of our other work. And I appreciate your coming on. We'll talk to you again at some point when another issue comes up that's in your wheelhouse. Thank you, Jessica. All right. Thank you. And finally, I had a couple of thoughts about the evacuation from Afghanistan, which was completed this week, and what that means for the admission of Afghans whom we brought out of Kabul. We are repeatedly told that the people that we brought out who don't already have some kind of reason to be brought into the United States, in other words, they don't already have a visa or obviously a green card or they're U.S. citizens, but everybody else, which is the large majority, are being kept at U.S. facilities abroad in the Middle East or in Germany or elsewhere, and that 
while they're there, they are undergoing thorough vetting, robust, extensive vetting. All kinds of adjectives are used before they are brought to the United States. And the point is to reassure people that we're not bringing potential threats from Afghanistan to the United States. And there's two reasons these assurances are hollow. The first is, what does vetting really mean? Some of these people have, in fact, already been vetted before they were even hired, especially the interpreters working for the military. They were not only thoroughly vetted before they were hired, but during their employment, they were repeatedly rechecked. To the extent you can do vetting at all in Afghanistan, some of those people, we probably do know really what's going on with them. But the evacuation that ended this week was so haphazard and rushed that significant numbers, maybe even the majority of the people whom we extracted, were not, in fact, previously screened. And so the question is, how do you screen people from a place like Afghanistan? It's a, it was a relatively poorly developed place, didn't have very effective document system or ID system. Although while we were occupying Afghanistan, we at least had a chance of verifying people's claims. Even then, it wasn't perfect. Bad guys slipped through the cracks. Even the serious detailed vetting still ended up failing in a number of cases. But when we were there, we at least had a chance of properly vetting people. Now, from thousands of miles away, there is no way that we can vet people whom we don't already know everything about. The Taliban isn't going to cooperate with us. We can't call up the public records department in Kabul if there even is such a thing anymore. And so vetting of people who haven't already been vetted is essentially impossible. And so the claims that we are doing thorough vetting are true as far as they go. I mean, the people doing the work, Homeland Security and State Department and others who are trying to make sure that people are legit before we let them come to the U.S., are doing the best they can. The problem is the information they have is limited. But the other problem with these assurances that the vetting will keep out anybody from the U.S. who shouldn't come here is that what do we do with someone that is offshore, we evacuated, say he's in Qatar or Bahrain or Germany or somewhere, and we're holding on to him temporarily and checking the background. What do we do with that person if we do find out somehow that there's a reason he shouldn't come to the U.S.? There's some kind of security issue where he's inadmissible for some other reason. What do we do with him then? We can't deport him to Afghanistan. The country that we are temporarily holding these people in and screening them isn't going to allow us to leave them there. The agreement was that we would bring people temporarily for a month or two, in most cases, is the agreement we had with these countries, and that then we would get them out. Well, we're going to let them into the United States. So even if we find in the process of this vetting that there's a problem with somebody that we removed from Afghanistan, we are still going to end up having to admit them to the United States. So these assurances that the government is taking every precaution to make sure that 
bad actors from Afghanistan who manage to get out don't end up coming to the United States are hollow. It's a charade because there is no option other than bringing them into the United States. This is why in a piece I wrote for National Review this week, I called it kabuki vetting. I kind of joked on Twitter, I should have called it vetting schmetting, because it literally does not matter what we find. They're all coming to the United States. So in reality, the moment the door on the C-17 airplane closed in the airport in Kabul, every Afghan on that plane was a de facto permanent resident of the United States, regardless of what we found out about that person. And anybody who tells you otherwise is not telling you the truth. That's it for this week on Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, your host. I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you.